The Changelog is a podcast about the world of open source. As open source has become closely tied with the entire software development lifecycle, The Changelog has expanded its coverage to the broader software industry. Since starting the podcast 10 years ago, Adam Stachowiak and Jared Santo have become full-time podcasters, and they've started several other podcasts within the Changelog network, including GoTime, JS Party, and Practical AI. Throughout all of their shows, there's a consistent theme of technical, entertaining conversations about software. In the last decade, so much has changed within open source. GitHub became the de facto social network for open source. Kubernetes created a widely used platform for distributed systems. React has given front-end developers a component system to consolidate around. Adam and Jared return to the show to discuss their perspective on the past and future of open source, and their learnings from interviewing influential software professionals for 10 years. Today's episode is sponsored by Datadog, a modern full-stack monitoring platform for cloud infrastructure, applications, logs, and metrics all in one place. From their recent report on serverless adoption and trends, Datadog found half of their customer base using EC2s have now adopted AWS Lambda. They've examined real-world serverless usage by thousands of companies running millions of distinct serverless functions and found half of Lambda invocations run for less than 800 milliseconds. You can easily monitor all your serverless functions in one place and generate serverless metrics straight from Datadog. Check it out yourself by signing up for a free 14-day trial and get a free t-shirt at softwareengineeringdaily.com slash datadog t-shirt. That's softwareengineeringdaily.com slash datadog t-shirt for your free t-shirt and 14-day trial from Datadog. Go to softwareengineeringdaily.com slash datadog t-shirt. Thank you, Datadog. Adam and Jared, welcome back to Software Engineering Daily. What's hey, up, what's thanks up? for having us. You guys started Changelog 10 years ago, and I figured we could start by just taking a little bit of retrospective. What are the most significant changes to the way that open source software is built over the last 10 years? I'd say it got more progressive rather than change, right? It's, it started out sort of like back in 2008 when GitHub launched, this new era of collaborative. Like before you had used to have an email diffs and you know, all these weird things, like this weird collaboration process. It's only like sort of propelled from there. We have more and more popularity around projects, more and more collaboration. I'd say community efforts have gotten deeper. Foundations, profit, obviously. There's lots of money in open source now, it seems. Yeah, I would say the sea change happened probably right before the podcast began, which was with the the public launch of GitHub and the beginning of the GitHub era. And that dramatically changed the way that open source was conducted mostly because it brought the source code to the forefront and really the collaboration and the social aspect of coding, which is so much of it, especially when you're a hobbyist or an open source maintainer, it brought that right up into the forefront. You know, the pull request flow, which is so popular now, was really coming out of that. And it changed many things. And then from then, yeah, I agree with you, Adam. It's been progressive since then. There's been a lot of money. There's been a lot of corporations coming into it. And there's been a lot of individuals suffering under the thumb of open source and trying to find ways of making some money or getting support. So, yeah. What about this one where you have 
a really crucial open source project that has a vulnerability that has actually affected, you know, the cloud or clouds or large scale applications and caused outages or big issues. That's a new thing in this decade. I mean, I guess it's probably happened before, but it seems more often everything from Heartbleed on to, you know, recent brand new news in the Rust world, which is, I believe it's Actix. Somebody has stepped away from an unsafe, uh, we can say it on your, on your show, Jeff, shitstorm. <laughs> what do you mean they stepped away from an unsafe shitstorm? What's that even mean? What are you referring to? Hey, man, yeah. it's, it's like brand new bleeding edge news. The repo on GitHub is Actix, A-C-T-I-X. And then the Actix web, I believe it's a web framework for the Rust world. I'm not sure the context, but I know that Steve Cladman talked about it and he's really sad about it. There's some details there that I was trying to read into. Like this is literally bleeding news like hmm. five hours ago. Bleeding edge news, not, I guess. Hard, it's hard hard indirect <laughs> well, and bleeding, and bleeding There's news. some bleeding going on. Bleeding yeah. News. Some people are yeah. suffering from it. Yeah. What about the importance of corporate backers? So, you know, open source was historically this thing that was, you know, the, the earlier days, you know, of, of Linux, where it was very decentralized, non-corporatized. Over time, it's gotten increasingly corporatized to what you have today with just the rise of open core companies and the cloud co-opting open source projects and productizing open source projects. What's the relationship between the corporate backer and open source projects today? I would say the relationship right now is that the corporations writ large are not really backing them in any sort of financial way. Now, there are exceptions to that, and we see movement in that area. But I think if we're just speaking about corporations and their relationship to open source over the last couple of years, I think they've been kind of on the take on the receiving end of the goodness and less on the giving end. And we're starting to see changes there. We're starting to see people who are in the open source maintainer world demand and uh, more support. And we're starting to see value exchange and saying, well, you it's difficult to just ask a corporation for donations, but you can provide a value exchange around a project and that is something that's a more feasible line item for them. And so it's giving them ways to give back and still receive. So it's a give and a take. I think historically, the open source maintainers have been more on the give and the corporations have been more on the take, but it's starting to change. The primary ways they're giving is in which ways though? Just primarily financial? I think the primary way corporations are giving right now is by allowing their employees to work on open source on business time. That's probably the primary support. I was more curious about the corporate stewards of the open source projects, the the companies that oh, are okay. that are funding the open source projects. And you know, I was, I was interested to get into a discussion of if you guys had any perspective on the on the licensing changes and the how these database companies are feeling like they need to insulate themselves from AWS through licensing changes. Okay, so yeah, that's the thing about open source is it's such a, a big thing that it's hard to, to drill in without specifics. So I was coming from the maintainer's perspective of like <laughs> right. open SSL, for example, right? Like it's this massively used SSL library that was maintained by a couple of people who were not funded whatsoever, hence Heartbleed back in the day. And really a, an eye-opening for us as a community, like, wow, some of our core infrastructure is completely under-maintained. From the perspective of like, Facebook, Google, these companies coming out with corporate-backed open-source projects such as Kubernetes, such as React. I think 
there's a lot of strategic reasons why they would do that. And there's a lot of value there for us as individuals because think about the the amount of labor put into React by Facebook, right? The the investment there is massive. And in that case, the indie devs, the small businesses, the open source maintainers, we all benefit from that because I could not build a React on my own. And they want to have it focused around, well, specifically like Kubernetes. I remember we had the Kubernetes folks on the changelog and we asked them, why open source this? It seems like a something you could monetize, right? Like it seems like a, a secret sauce. Why open source that? And their response in summary was, this was a like cloud orchestration was going to be a thing and it's something that everybody does. And so we wanted it to be a thing that we were drivers of. We want to be at the center of that ecosystem. So I think there's lots of reasons why corporations go open source and that's one of them. Do you guys have a sense for how Kubernetes has affected the competitive dynamics of the cloud providers? Like, you know, pre-Kubernetes, it looked like AWS was just going to run away with the entire cloud business. And Kubernetes has really opened up an opportunity for Google to have an in. I suppose Microsoft had an in even despite Kubernetes just through their integrations or enterprise sales channels or whatever. But do you have a sense for how Kubernetes has changed the competitive dynamics of the cloud? I'd say it's flattened it, right? If AWS was sort of leading that front in a lot of ways, they had the secret sauce, which was, in a lot of cases, getting your stuff there and managing it, orchestration. And with the you know open sourcing of Kubernetes and everybody being able to use it, to also add on to that the CNCF and the efforts being done there to sort of bring everyone to the same table, I think, it goes back to what Jared was saying around React, where you have this massive investment from Facebook, and that just can't be quantified. It's very difficult to quantify it. And if you take the same lens and apply it to Kubernetes, where you see all these clouds pouring into the same orchestration infrastructure and community, it, it, it levels the playing field, but it also makes the software we use to make that happen so much better. The footprint is, you know, the, the visibility into what Kubernetes is and where it's going is seen by all, and everyone's welcome to the table, preferably. You know, to some degree, there, there's an invitation there for everybody. Do you guys have any perspective on whether AWS has taken too much oxygen out of the room? Do you, there is, um, you know, Redis Labs to Elastic to mm-hmm. MongoDB. There is this perspective that AWS has taken an, an unfair amount of value without contributing back to open source repos. And this perspective kind of assumes some some norms around open source. The the idea that if you get some significant amount of value out of an open source ecosystem by monetizing it, you have some obligation of giving back. Is there an, an undue amount of value being taken by AWS from the open source ecosystem? I don't know who's the arbiter of what is undue value. You know, I think it's a case by case basis. I think if you ask the creators of, or the, I say the, the business Redis Labs, I think if you ask Elastic, then the answer from them, from their perspective is yes. I think if you ask Amazon from their perspective, I think the answer is probably no. As an observer, 
I land somewhere in the middle. I can kind of see Amazon's perspective. I also see where we had Adam Jacob, a great conversation with Adam Jacob on the show where... I enjoyed that episode a lot, actually. Oh, thank you. Yeah, his perspective is, I think, unique because then Adam had Sentry's David Kramer on and asked him about Adam Jacob's perspective, which I'll share here. So we're all in the loop, but he disagreed with it. And so I think there's people on both sides of this. Adam Jacob's perspective on this particular subject is that what an AWS does when it adopts your open source project that you have a business built around is it validates it in a way. Now, you, if you have paying customers and stuff, it's probably already validated, but it does do that. It gives Amazon very vested interest in that thing remaining and then being able to provide that service for a long time. And then it also dramatically increases the top of your sales funnel as their platform is so large, it dwarfs their customer base is so large in comparison to most other businesses, especially open source focused businesses, that it opens up a huge sales funnel for those businesses, people that never would have come across their product. And now they get Amazon's default install of Mongo or, or of Elastic, and then allows you to then compete directly with that default which they're never going to really have much of a value at. I mean, Amazon, when they add new services, it's basically like the default service with, you know, SLAs and an interface and an API. But his argument is like, that's very easy for a business to compete against because they, Amazon, their interest is like, how many services can we add versus can we make this like the most awesome featureful version? And so that's his take on it. And David Kramer says of Sentry, he's like, yeah, I don't care. I don't want them to, to, to run my software basically for free and resell it. So depends on who you ask. What do you think, Adam? I think it's a hard one to answer. Honestly, I, I agree with you. It depends on who you ask. I'd like to also know the arbiter of you know, unfair value or undue value. I personally don't follow AWS's interactions in open source well enough to really know what they've done, I mean, or, or what they haven't done, you know, how, because open source is the way it is, I, I suppose it's sort of a social contract, not a open source license that requires you to participate, right? You can freely use it and freely do it. And now you have different licensing options like business source licensing, or, you know, I think it's called zero license or something like that. There's a couple different options now that sort of enable you to do what Century has, which is done eventually open source, which is they put their stuff out there. It is open source but it has a time, a ticking timer basically to it actually becomes open source. So it will be eventually open source. Now that, that opens up some unique options for centuries of the world to still be in this open source world, but then you get this sort of backlash of like, well, is it really open source? And then the people that generally sort of fight that battle and sometimes literally go to legal wars with it is the OSI, you know, kind of protecting the word open source. It may be in spirit open source, but calling it open source is the thing I think people begin to scrutinize. Mm -hmm. I think your point, uh, the word you chose there was norms, Jeff. And I think that that is astute because Amazon is completely inside their rights and inside all legalities to do exactly what they're doing. And so the question really is about like moral norms. And then you're talking about the norms of a community that's global and, you know, spans ages, spans business sizes from a single developer all the way up to Microsoft at 55,000 or however many people that work for them. And so, like, what are the norms of this community? It's very difficult to nail those down because everybody has their own ideas about what those are. You know, what's funny is I feel like there's a sensibility in the developer community that 
as soon as anything gets too profitable, we just reverse engineer some reason to criticize them. And it's funny because like you would think like, okay, look, Linux took over. Like Linux is just the operating system that everybody uses. Linux is the best. But, you know, we never say Linux has too much market share. It's it's just an open source thing. But as soon as somebody is making a preponderous amount of money off of something, then we instinctively look for a reason to to find some some criticism of them. Maybe that's just a source of of human nature. I don't know, but don't be too successful, right? Don't make too much money. Basically, don't go too far because if so, there is some backlash, and I think it comes from equality, right? You want to have some. I think it's about being able to access. Once something gets so big, so profitable, take Amazon for example. If Amazon launches a business, and this is sort of in the capitalistic side of things, if they launch a business in a world, let's say they want to acquire, you know, well, the grocery market of Whole Foods gets very dynamically different. If they want to release a particular style of business, every other business in that market will then, you know, be devalued in in many ways because Amazon is such a Goliath. So when you have that kind of power, it's specific to Amazon and then, you know, by way of AWS, then that, that is an unfair advantage to some degree, that doesn't mean it's not earned and they didn't get there by, you know, moral means even, you know, like they've done it in a way that hasn't sort of like screwed over people. They're just so big now and people, you don't want it to be that big. You don't want it to be that profitable because it's a large amount of power in one hand. So one subject I wanted to ask you guys about was the two businesses of GitHub and GitLab. So GitHub obviously was core to the rise of open source. And then GitLab came out and started off in some ways looking somewhat similar to GitHub. It looked like a kind of just basically an open source version of GitHub. But since then has gone in a totally divergent direction. How do you see the two businesses of GitHub and GitLab developing in their divergent business lines over time? Well, I think that GitHub is sort of most well-known for open source. It's almost as if, if you're in the world of open source, we just had this conversation too, to some degree. Like if you're in the world of open source, you're almost expected to be on GitHub, not a self-hosted Git or GitLab, for example. Like that's where open source, in quotes, happens. Not my true opinion where a lot of it happens, but I think it happens in a lot of different places, but it's, that's where the masses are, the critical mass at least. And GitHub has actually done some things in enterprise and done some things in other areas, but they're, I don't know their exact revenue and where their revenue numbers come from in terms of a, a pie chart, but I would venture to say they have a lot of paying individual customers, a lot of paying corporations using it to host their open source projects. And it's almost as if you want to be there so that you can have open source and closed sourced in the same bucket. Might as well not even, you know, have a GitLab and a GitHub. Why would you host it in two different places? Maybe some people do. I don't know. Whereas GitLab seems to be more focused on the enterprise, the enterprise customer base, and that kind of thing. They've done very well there. So their businesses are a little different in that front. They both do code hosting, but I would even say that GitLab has gone even further to say they want to provide an entire ecosystem for the developer that they've transcended this code hosting idea, right? They've got CI tools and various tools in their tool bat that, that make an entire developer workflow from ideation to shipping a thing in a collaborative way. Whereas GitHub has been focused on inching towards that 
in some ways with issues or different projects and stuff like that. But they've kind of, the cream of the crop has been the fact that they've been the open source way and they profit off of that and build their business upon that. When I'm building a new product, G2i is the company that I call on to help me find a developer who can build the first version of my product. G2i is a hiring platform run by engineers that matches you with React, React Native, GraphQL, and mobile engineers who you can trust. Whether you are a new company building your first product, like me, or an established company that wants additional engineering help, G2i has the talent that you need to accomplish your goals. Go to softwareengineeringdaily.com slash G2i to learn more about what G2i has to offer. We've also done several shows with the people who run G2i, Gabe Greenberg and the rest of his team. These are engineers who know about the React ecosystem, about the mobile ecosystem, about GraphQL, React Native... They know their stuff, and they run a great organization. In my personal experience, G2i has linked me up with experienced engineers that can fit my budget, and the G2i staff are friendly and easy to work with. They know how product development works. They can help you find the perfect engineer for your stack, and you can go to softwareengineeringdaily.com slash G2i to learn more about G2i. Thank you to G2i for being a great supporter of Software Engineering Daily, both as listeners and also as people who have contributed code that have helped me out in my projects. So if you want to get some additional help for your engineering projects, go to softwareengineeringdaily.com slash G2i. Architecturally, I think GitLab is also interesting as an open source monolithic system that does a lot of things. So you have GitLab CI and GitLab static analysis, monitoring, all these other things that are bundled with GitLab. And as a open source project, that's a pretty strong divergence from the Unix philosophy. You know, the the whole idea of just do one thing. And like a lot of the you know, I'd say the the vast majority of open source projects in the past are something that are that's narrow, some narrow NPM library or narrow database system, queuing system. But you have this occasional big monolithic open source system, like a Linux, like a GitLab or a WordPress or a Dev.2. Is there something we can learn from that? The idea that there is this occasional giant monolith that comes out that is successful. What's the divergent breakdown? What makes a giant monolithic open source system successful? Well, it's integration. So it goes back to classic modular versus integrated products. And over the last 15 years or so, I think Apple has proven over and over again that integrated products tend to be better products in many ways. Of course, there's drawbacks as well. So it's a trade-off. But I wonder, I mean, are you speaking architecturally? Because I think if you had like GitLab engineers on the show, I think they would probably argue that they're they're using the Unix philosophy insofar as they have these different architectural sections. Like I, I think maybe they would take 
umbrage of being called monolithic, but I think integrated is maybe a, a word they might like better because there are separate modules that GitLab has, and I think they're relatively decoupled. You can plug and play different aspects of GitLab. And so it's an integrated product, but the architecturally, I think they, they don't have like a monolith necessarily. That being said, I, I take your point, and I think that it's nice having everything in one place, you know? It's nice having everything flow in and out of the same system and not having to glue together things ourselves. Now, as developers, we also sometimes like to just, well, I'll thank you. I'll just glue things together myself, and I'll go from there. And there's customers for that style, but I think GitLab's proving, and I think other companies such as Apple has proved that integrated solutions are really, really nice because they are seamless in many places where your modular systems have seams. WordPress, you guys both spent time in the WordPress ecosystem, right? Yeah. Was why is WordPress so persistent? Why is that community seemingly indestructible when it comes to CMS? Mm, that's a really good question. I wonder that myself sometimes. Like, why is WordPress not just still around, but it's still dominating in in the... Nothing's come close, right? There's there's nothing that has even come close to competing. Apples to apples. And the closest thing might be something like Squarespace, which isn't an apples to apples scenario because it's not open source and it's not self-installable. It's a platform. There's a lot of people who use Squarespace to do that, like a CMS or a website or an easy website, you know, with a theme. One thing I think WordPress did pretty well early on was they moved beyond blogging and they allowed just with the pages feature and with the customization features, they allow, they moved from something which many people started like free open source blogging platform. And they allowed you to create non-blog websites early on. Now that's commonplace today. That was where a lot of people move from like, I use this as my blogging system to like, I now I need another website for my business. Oh, I'm used to WordPress. I know it. I can set it up with pages. It doesn't have to look like a blog. And by the way, I can have a news feed, which technically is a blog. That's great. And so I think that was one aspect of it was they, it was malleable early on and didn't have to be bloggish. It was CMS. It was more of a general purpose CMS, maybe earlier than other platforms. I also think WordPress really developed a rich ecosystem of plugins and a marketplace for those plugins. That's actually one of the things that bugs me now when I go back to it is that all the plugins are like monetized and they're making like, it's like the freemium models and like inside your WordPress plugins, you have indie devs either scratching out or having a nice living inside of this WordPress plugin directory and finding ways, which is cool. As an end user, I'm like, oh, it's, I remember the good old days when everything was just free and open source and now there's there's money involved and so that feels icky but that a lot of people started building businesses on top of WordPress and once you get that there I mean there is a there's a network effect the first paying gig I ever had as a web developer was building out somebody's WordPress website for their business what year was that 2004 yeah hmm. yeah it's a long time ago I'll I'll add to what Jared said. I think that the same thing, I think it's one part leadership of WordPress and one part software enablement. So you've had this open source software project out there, pretty accessible. PHP was well accessible. LAMP stacks were easy to stack up. It was the barriers to entry were very little at that time. FTP and moving things that way was very commonplace. It was the only way at that point. Not the only way, you still had rsync, I'm sure. I would say it's one part leadership and one part that, but you've got this ecosystem of plugins, freely available. You can easily trust going to WordPress and saying, 
if I hit a hurdle, there's something out there that gets me over that hurdle. If I haven't developed it myself, which I can, if I can learn how to write plugins, otherwise there are plugins out there that are tried and true that people recommend they have a marketplace for it. Matt Mullen has also been a great advocate for WordPress and a great business leader, a great citizen of the community as well. He has a very good outlook. So I think it's one part, the enablement that the software has provided the users of it, and then also this developer ecosystem, but then also to not discount Matt Mullenweg's, I mean, the names are synonymous, really. WordPress, Matt. Right, right. Kind of go together. Yeah. Shifting from open source specifically to a conversation that we touched on a little bit in the last time I was on your show, the idea of how programmers should think about their career, think about their work life. So, you know, we talked about GitLab a little bit. So GitLab has pioneered a particular type of working. So they have this transparency model. They have this large-scale remote workforce. They do a lot of things that are somewhat heretical or would seem totally heretical 10 years ago. Today, it, it seems slightly less heretical, still somewhat, you know, unusual. What can be learned from the GitLab management model? Do you mean about how it's very open? Well, from the transparency to the remote workforce to just... Well, I guess those two, those two main things. I think it's the way. Things. I mean, you're going to see, we already see this. We already see people, I mean, I work from home right now. I guess it's a little different. I work for GitLab, but there's a lot of people I know in the software world that work from home or have a varied, they might even live, you know, 30 minutes or a, a short train ride away from the office and they still work from home the majority of the time because it's a thing. Now, in terms of the openness, I think that's the way. I think you see more and more businesses having to sort of like, it's set an expectation of openness and inclusiveness because that's sort of what our community has demanded. It's, what, it's what's desired from the community. And to be a business and go against that and not play with that, I think Sid has been very forthcoming and, and very future-looking when it comes to that because he's, he said, I want to create a company that people want to work at. And I think that's how you do it is, is you attract them through inclusive and diversity and openness. Hmm. And how transparent should it be? So how far should the transparency go? Should we have all emails be public? Should everyone's compensation be known? How do we answer those questions of transparency? That's slightly above my pay grade. And we don't even know what your pay grade is because your compensation is in transparency. I don't know. I don't do that. (laughs) Well, basic math. You can can go to our website and do some basic math and figure out our pay grade. But I don't know, honestly. I mean, I think that there's, there's a, I haven't studied the, the, I would say the data. I haven't looked at the deep data on this subject, but you know, my instinct is like, there's, when it comes to privacy, you don't know you want to be private until it's time to be private about something. Yeah. You know, yeah. You, you want your privacy when it's like, okay, now my privacy is invaded. So I think in those regards, it's the same that you don't want inequality in pay, but at the same time, as a business, you don't want to be forced to pay people, I guess, more than their worth or more than the value of their position because the whole point of a business is to profit and to grow. That's how things work. Now, there's ways to do that that are ethical and ways that are to do that are, say, slightly less ethical. But I don't think publishing everybody's paychecks or salaries is is wise either because there's, you know, aside from coworkers looking at it, you also have creditors and other people who get that same information or could get that same information. Now, if it's just internally, I don't know. I don't, I just don't know. 
It's difficult. That's a difficult one to answer. And I'm so glad I'm not in that position. I think what companies like GitLab have proven is that other models can work and that we don't have to do business the same way we've been doing business for the last N years. And we don't really know what's better. Experimentation is good. You know, a completely open, everything's published company needs to exist before we can know whether or not that's a good idea or a bad idea. Let history decide, right? Let the market decide if a company wants to come out and set a policy of, you know, publishing all employee salaries. Does GitLab do that? I don't know exactly how open they are. I don't think so. Okay. So say a company... Buffer did that. Yeah, Buffer did that. So like a radical transparency, I think people have called Buffer style. Well, do people want to go work for Buffer? I mean, because people will decide like, well, I'm not going to work there because I don't want my salary published or, ah, that's great. Now I can see what everybody's making. I can negotiate better. I would like to have everybody's salaries published. So I think over time, the market decides, I think we need more experimentation. I think what one thing that seems true so far is that remote work can work and that people like it. I mean, there's challenges Technology is helping us bridge a lot of those gaps, but especially in the software world where salary is a lever, but at a certain point, there's a law of diminishing returns on salary in terms of incentivizing an employee, right? Once you get to a certain salary, you know, raising it another $10,000 a year is like nice, but does that change my quality of life as much as I get to live where I want to live in the world? Like there's other levers you can pull and quality of life is a huge one that I think people are starting to say, yeah, actually, if quality of life is more important to me than a title or a salary. Okay. And thinking further about radical models of knowledge work. So this is why I kind of like this conversation is because software development and knowledge work are in their infancy relative to a blacksmith or assembly line worker. I mean, there was a time when assembly line work was totally new. It was totally novel. Now we think about an assembly line, oh, it's just a way of doing work. Like it's It wasn't that long ago either. It wasn't that long ago. So you have this brand new, you know, in the scheme of things, thing called knowledge work and this even brander new way of doing knowledge work where you're working from home. Other radical models that should be explored more. So like there was one topic we did a show on called programmer anarchy, which is the perspective that you can just hire a bunch of software engineers, you put some OKRs and some KPIs in place, and basically the developers figure out everything. So the developers do marketing and design and sales and everything else. And maybe you can, you attach bounties to things. So like, oh, you know, if you do a good enough job, then, uh, you know, maybe you get rewarded with a bounty or something like that. You could gamify it. What are the extreme models that we need to try more of within the software ecosystem? He stumped me. I'm stuck on this programmers do everything model. Well, you, so you guys derive satisfaction from doing a little bit of everything, right? You're entrepreneurs. Yes. I've met many people who feel the same way. And it seems like once people go in the direction of becoming an entrepreneur, it's rare that they revert. Well, why would you? People enjoy the cross training. They like a little bit of everything. I would suppose too, if you had success, if you, if you dabbled in entrepreneurship and failed and you're not resilient to failure, you may not see that as feedback as how to iterate towards a future entrepreneurship opportunity that may deter you and you might retract. You might regress back into a non-entrepreneurial mindset. But I think once you've sort of hit a little bit of success, 
and you have some resiliency, then you, you're going to be the kind of person that can push forward and try these more experimental ways. And like the way we've designed our businesses is lifestyle, right? I just had a kid in December. Jared's carried a ton of the weight in December. He hasn't complained once. Thank God, right? But, you know, the well, point is we run, not to, not to <laughs> me, but just the point kidding. is, is that, uh, you know, is that we, and the same thing when Jared had his recent daughter, what was that about a year ago, Jared, just a little past mm-hmm. a year ago, yeah. around the same time frame, right? It was a January, February? No, it was December 7th. Yours was December 10th, three days, a year and three days. Okay. Wow. So very close together, same time frames. Same. I carried the weight and, and it w- I wasn't angry with Jared in any regards because we run a family oriented business. We've designed the the outlook of our business and even the choices we make around our business. Like how does this not only impact our paychecks and profitability and revenue stream, but more importantly, how does it change our family lifestyle? How does it impact our families? And I would say not just his and mine, but collectively even, you know, we have some particular directions we want to go. And that, that extends also to everyone that works with us that we're, we act a lot like a family. You know, we treat people well, we take care of things for them. We don't, we don't expect them to deliver more value to us than we give back to them. And we want to reciprocate when they're in hard times or they're in a burnout stage or they're in a time where they need to take some time away. We're not like, well, you've committed to this. You got to come to the show and do these different things. We say, okay, no problem. Hmm. Do what you got to do. How can we help? How can we be there for you to support you? What can we do to help you through this time? And rather than say, get back into a position to produce a show or ship a thing or write some software or deliver a new interface. It's very flexible. That's the kind of business I want to run and work for. I feel roughly the same way. I mean, at least in terms of the freedom that you have. I mean, if you're working for yourself, working from home, lifestyle, business kind of thing, you have freedom. You can do with that freedom what you want. If you want to amp up your, you know, your family life or, you know, or focus on family life, you can do that. If you want to amp up your business or you want to, you know, go into some hobby, you want to travel, you know, you can do all those different things. What's funny is in our particular seats, most or at least many of the people that we interview are in a totally different situation. They are you know, working for for these companies, or working for working for a big company, a small company, and you know, there's a particular kind of satisfaction that you get from working on those big teams, from shipping these these hugely influential products that you basically can't ship without being on these closely integrated teams. I wonder if we're missing something. Do we? Ah. You know, what, what what are we missing? Maybe there's some kind of validation you get from working on these big software teams, shipping these huge products that we don't get a taste of anymore, or never did. I've definitely thought about that. First of all, I should say that our industry is so filled with opportunity that we can sit around and think like, what kind of a life do I want to have? Because that's really what you're asking yourself, right? Like, in my career, do I want to maximize profit? Do I want to maximize freedom? Do I want to maximize impact or some sort of balance of those three? And, or maybe there's other attributes of my life that I am going to design. So we should, you know, it's amazing the opportunity in our industry where we can have these kind of conversations because business is really hard and staying in business is really hard. And yet there's so much opportunity inside of software and technology that many of us can excel and and stay in business or, or sell our business. I've optimized my life for freedom from very early on. Like that's what I'm after. I got it early on. I was very fortunate to have the freedom early on. And now I, I regard it as precious 
And so to have that freedom, I have to trade other things. Like all things are trade-offs. And what I don't get is I don't get impact. Cause I, you know, like you said, I talk to people on our shows and they're doing these things. They're creating projects that are affecting <laughs> so many people. My, my, my poster child is Daniel Stenberg of Curl. Maybe he has both. Maybe he's doing better than us. He's got, he might have freedom and impact, but that's one of the things about open source is you can have impact as, as a single contributor. But, you know, the people who work on the notes app for Apple's iOS or for Android, right? Think about how many people use notes.app on iOS in the world. Millions, maybe a, nah, not a billion. I think of a billion users. If everybody uses the default notes app, your software is helping millions and hundreds of millions of people. That's, that's impact that I'm not going to have because that's a trade-off that I've taken. And so I think, yeah, we are missing out on things, but we're fortunate because we get to choose those things. Last year, you guys did some shows with a few classic software voices, Bob Martin, Dave Thomas, Andy Hunt. The subjects that these individuals have explored, how durable are they? Like These guys are writing books that you know, are, are classically referred to as, as part of the canon of software mm-hmm. development. How canonical is their material? Are are there sacred cows that are durable or are there sacred cows that perhaps are outdated and maybe should be slaughtered? My answer would probably lie on the fact that they're, they're our most popular episodes of the entire year. And <laughs> most of them were produced and shipped in the latter half of the year. I think post-July, Pragmatic Programmers was, I'm just going to look at the timestamp real quick, but my memory calls it, yeah, right there at the middle mark, July 11th. You know, back to Agile Basics with Bob Martin, that was, I think that was in like November or October or something like that. So even later, yeah, October 31st, Halloween, basically. You know, and those are our two of our most popular episodes of last year. So I would just base it on our stats alone. I would say they're desired. They're they're obviously popular. If they're canon, I think they're already canon in that regard. But I think they're timeless topics. You can always, I suppose in an Agile world, you can always talk about Agile from a Bob Martin perspective and get and raise many waves. If you're Andy Hunt and, you know, the pragmatic programmers, if you're those guys, then you can easily, re, you know, sort of revamp a 20-year edition of your collective knowledge and still see the same kind of waves because it's, it's such canon already. You're sort of revising it to fit the next decade and beyond potentially. And they had even said that the last 20 years have been so many changes in the way software is produced that this, not a lot has changed, but also plenty also has changed. So a middle ground there. Bob Martin and Pragmatic Programmers author pair, respectively, how would you boil down each of those philosophical treatises? What is the thing to take away from each of those pieces of canonical work? I'll make it easy. Just go listen to those episodes. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, we also have a transcript. If you're a reader, just go ahead and read it. That's your takeaway. It's about an hour-ish investment per and draw your own conclusion. But I think the back to agile basics, what I love about Uncle Bob is he shares this sort of 50 year veteran in software wisdom. And one thing that occurred to me during that show is how often do you get a chance to sit down with somebody in our industry and have a 50 year old experience based conversation of wisdom? It's not often. As he even said, with the doubling and the effects of the, you know, the community growth, the software developer community growth, people that had been in software at his age bracket, I think he said it was 67. If you call correctly, Jared, there's oh, not yeah. a lot of 67 year olds out there that started their career in software. 
So there's a very small pool of Uncle Bob's out there. My tried and true opinion has been to listen to people who've been there, done that for many, many years. I think when you hear him speak about the way software's done, and maybe some in some cases he's wrong, but in a lot of cases he's right. Worst case, you're getting some pretty interesting wisdom along with some anecdotes and some data points because he shares stories from other people. It's not just simply by Uncle Bob. He's invited others to write chapters as well and added some flavor to it. But it's not simply just Uncle Bob. It's a little bit more than just him. And you have that wisdom that I think is not found often in our industry. That by wisdom, I mean, not that kind of smart, but that kind of depth, that level of 50 year plus experience. Over the next 10 years, are we going to see software become a trendy art form? Is it going to become like music or video where it is as trendy as pop music? Isn't it already? Look at Glitch. No, it's not. Look at TikTok versus Glitch. I mean, massive size differential there. I mean, music is global, not global impact in terms of accessibility, but in terms of people who are involved in it. Like billions of people involved in the versus millions. Yes. Yeah, and the, I don't know, perhaps the, the, the glamorization or the intersection with pop culture and, you know, influential people and the aspirational side of it. I hope so. I think that over time, these worlds blend. We already see the blend of software and music. And Jeff, you, you know that very well as a musician and somebody who's into software. There's a lot of overlap in video games. There's a lot of overlap in lots of these different pop cultural areas, movies, criticism, video, etc. I think that programming has to become much more accessible to a general audience for it to be wielded by a general audience. And I think with every layer of abstraction, we kind of move towards that end. I heard you speaking recently with Kevin Ball about the no-code movement and, you know, can we provide programming interface to people who don't have to study and, you know, put years into it in order to produce something beautiful and amazing? I think kind of sort of maybe we're going to get there, you know, kind of like that. Yeah. that's where it is. And then we're trying at that. And I definitely think there's, you see a mirror between, I mean, even in our, in our, in the way the recruiters talk, like rock star developer, right? Like ninja, like there's like this, there's already a glamorization to a certain degree of people who can sling code. And I think as more and more people can do that and, you know, fr from their, from their basement in Idaho, write some code that improves the lives of somebody who's, you know, over in Japan or like people are all around the world. Like that amount of leverage is currently available in music, right? Like you can write a song in Russia and it can speak to me over here in Nebraska. And I think that that as there's accessible to the tooling, I think that that will probably happen. And that's, I think that will be glamorous. Today's show is brought to you by Heroku, which has been my most frequently used cloud provider since I started as a software engineer. Heroku allows me to build and deploy my apps quickly without friction. Heroku's focus has always been on the developer experience, and working with data on the platform brings that same great experience. Heroku knows that you need fast access to data and insights so you can bring the most compelling and relevant apps to market. 
Heroku's fully managed Postgres, Redis, and Kafka data services help you get started faster and be more productive, whether you're working with Postgres or Apache Kafka or Redis. And that means you can focus on building data-driven apps, not data infrastructure. Visit softwareengineeringdaily.com slash Heroku data to learn about Heroku's managed data services. We build our own site, softwaredaily.com, on Heroku. And as we scale, we will eventually need access to data services. I'm looking forward to taking advantage of Heroku's managed data services because I'm confident that they will be as easy to use as Heroku's core deployment and application management systems. Visit softwareengineeringdaily.com slash Heroku data to find out more. And thanks to Heroku for being a sponsor of Software Engineering Daily. I need to talk to you guys some about podcasting because that is a you know something we we share in terms of our day-to-day activities. One thing that you guys have that I have never really experienced is the the co-host. Describe the dynamics of a co-host of a podcast. How are you an effective co-host and what is the what does the listener want from the foil of a co-host? Well, I think it has to be enjoyable. So I think in, in a lot of ways, it's a partnership at a very basic level. You know, it may not be a business partnership at first, but it, it would definitely be a partnership and it has to be reciprocal, meaning that that person has to care about me and I have to care about them at some point and to some degree. And maybe that's not always the case because there may be like complete opposites and that's what makes the art form, the delivery of whatever you're doing podcasting on could be entertainment wise. I think there should be some sort of chemistry, whether it's, you know, anti-chemistry or chemistry. Meaning that, you know, getting along or not getting along, if it's the entertainment value of the podcast, if it's what it's trying to deliver, then, you know, then the co-host needs to sort of match that. I think it's also important to have a couple sides to a coin. You know, what's, what coin do you find that doesn't have two sides? I think it's interesting as well, like where Jared may, you know, represent a different side of, in particular, the change log, you know, I re- represent another side and we complement each other in that regard. But I think respect you know, I think listeners want to have that engagement between one another too. I think that's important. Yeah, I think in terms of what it provides is it provides perspectives. And so two differing perspectives can come up with, I think, ultimately more fascinating conversations with a guest than if I was just by myself, my own perspective. Because Adam will ask things that I never would have thought of because I'm just not even bringing that perspective whatsoever. And sometimes that will change the course of an interview or a conversation that we hadn't planned, but now I went in this whole new direction and this direction is actually kind of fascinating and amazing. And sometimes I'll do that uh, as well. And so I think that's what it gives us perspective. It's also nice to feel conversational with like more than just a a back and forth, but what it requires is, is trust and respect. I mean, and a, a certain amount of humility to not be like, this is my interview, you know, like I'll ask the questions around here. Like we have to think about each other constantly. Sometimes I'll be like, dang, I'm talking too much. I need to ask Adam if he has anything he would like to get, you know, if I'm, if I'm just filling the void, I'll have to back channel, like Adam hop in here, you know, because I care about his voice being heard and his perspective being shown. I don't want to hog the ball. So it, it requires trust and respect and it provides uh, multiple perspectives that you, you may miss. I think a lot of what happens between Jared and I too is, is very automated these days. Like it's just second nature for us. And even having to like retrospective and think about 
those things in particular is hard because we've sort of automated a lot of what we do already. You could probably even see where there's, you know, after you ask a question, Jeff, there's a slight pause between, and it may get edited out in your version of it. Who knows? But there's some level of a pause, or in this case, now we have the video aspect where we're using Zoom. So it's a lot easier to have an empathy position because I can see Jared's face or his demeanor. I may even see him puzzling over something and I can see visually the pause along with the audible pause. A lot of that, I think, between Jared and I, specifically on the changelog, is just automated these days because we've just worked together for so long. It, we just, we almost know. Jared will know when somebody's talking about something with space, physics, or, you know, <laughs> granularity of icebergs that, that I might go into, you know, the very, very small or the very, very large. I think about physics a lot. You know, that's just an interesting thing to me. So I, I find some interest in that. So he knows that I'm probably going to jump in there. And that's just the relationship. I say chemistry because it's, that's a natural thing you have in a relationship is this idea of chemistry, this commingling. And that's interesting, I think. The humility, Jerry, I think is an important aspect to consider too, because it does take humility to not make it about you. It's, you definitely have to put your ego aside when it's a co-host position and, and not feel like you're hogging or not offering. Have you ever considered a co-host, Jeff? You know, well, this gets into a discussion of like, I know you're a huge fan of the one-on-ones. I do like the one-on-ones, but this gets into a discussion of like, how do you scale a media business? How do you scale a podcast business particularly? I mean, and, you know, it comes down to a decision of like, what do you want to do with that scale? I mean, do you want to like just sort of grow your business in terms of like doing the same thing, but hopefully getting better at it and maybe charging higher ad rates, maybe improving the audio quality? Or like what you guys have done, do you want to grow horizontally? Do you want to have additional shows? Do you want to have cross-promotion between those shows, economies of scale between those different shows? Do you want to go to video? You know, do you want a broad media organization like NPR? You know, like where do you want to scale? What do you want to scale? Do you want to go to video? Do you want to go to conferences? And, you know, I think if you bring on a co-host, you know, you're, you're making a certain declaration about what you want to change about your show and how you want to scale it. So like the current format works. It, it works for me. It's something I like to do. If I were to bring on a co-host, it would be to a point of, of changing the dynamics of the show. It would be, and I think, you know, frankly speaking, you know, part of it would be because I have such kind of a high demands for what I would want out of a co-host, I would need to compensate them. I would have the expectation that like you're going to bring to the table the same level of discipline that I am. And so, you know, it's, it's a high bar. Jeff, I think that answer to that idea is it's changed over the years. You know, if you'd asked me, let's say in 2016, 2015, my answer would be different than it would have been in 2017, 2018. I think we've just kind of iterated and layered on and we've tried things. You know, we thought that one show would be great and that'd be fine. Then we realized we wanted to kind of go out and have more voices. We always look to you as well as a, as a consistent five shows a week, you know, one a day platform and, and have always been like, wow, that's really hard. And we've kind of gone there by diversifying our shows versus adding more episodes to one podcast. So I'd say my answers changed over the years. Now it's a little different. What about YouTube? I mean, you guys could have gone to, to video. We've talked a little bit about conferences. You know, 
both of our businesses have focused pretty particularly on podcasting, going deep rather than broad. But why not do these other things? Or is there an intention to eventually do the other things? Something I'd actually, I don't know if it's a thing, if it's a written thing, maybe I should write about it if it's not. But I've had this kind of idea of profit to effort ratio. We've tried other things like video and have done video things, but the effort was very large and the profit was mediocre or not as big. And so as any business might want to begin and to get some foundation beneath it, which is revenue, and I would even say reliable revenue, we've decided to focus what I think on is the profit to effort ratio. We focus on things that are higher profit that require less effort. Because we have limited bandwidth, we're just two people. I just mentioned earlier too about being very family focused and that's a very important aspect of our business. So Jared and I working, we, I don't know how many hours a week Jared even works. If it's 50 or 60, I don't think it is. He probably no. works just 40, but yeah. you know, I don't want to work 50, 60 hours a week. There's some weeks I might because there's some ebb and flow in our business, but generally we're trying to just be, you know, nine to five, eight to six, whatever the number is, you know, I kind of, my North star in my life and as well in business is work eight, play eight, sleep eight. And if you do that, quality life will, will prosper. You enjoy your family. You enjoy the work you have. You enjoy the playtime you get to have. And uh, all work and no play makes Jack a dull boy. <laughs> Wisdom from Kubrick. So I can't find the quote. I've been Googling frantically over here. But there's a sentiment, which I think I may have shared with you at Open Core Summit, Jeff, that somebody said somewhere, and I've been parroting, which is that in, I think it was in 2019, it was said, but now in 2020, that the ideal size of a media organization limits to one. Like it actually reduces down to a single voice or a single face or a single person versus the old style, which was like, how big can Mm -hmm. it get? And I think those companies are struggling, right? Except not the New York Times, not the New York Times, not Washington Post. Right, but there's only one New York Times. Uh, there's hundreds, if not thousands of other media companies that are either downsizing right. or failing or being merged, et cetera. Whereas today with the leverage of the internet and the easeability of, of produ- production and really the, the, the platforms that we have, you know, your Marquez Brownlees on YouTube or your Joe Rogans, like that model is great in terms of scale. Like you can scale your business without really scaling your business in terms of employee count or payroll, right? So we've thought about, you know, like hiring, like expanding, like what do we want to be? You know, who do you want to be when you grow up? And in a large way, we're kind of regarding the things that we have, which is our freedom, which is this this way of doing business that we like. And I, I think Adam's ideas around higher profit for lower effort allows us to stay in that wheelhouse and not have to expand because we have very labor intensive things to do. And that's working very well. That being said, you always want to kind of do more. You want to be more, you want to get into video. I mean, I have ideas for, I think, great developer focused content in video that I don't think anybody's doing yet, but we have bandwidth constraints. So then you have to start making hard decisions. And mostly we've just deferred some of those things in order to build out our horizontal portfolio of shows. We aren't the only voices on those shows, like Adam said. So we have contractors and relationships with people who hop in and out. And that's fun. It keeps it fun. It's not just the two of us in our own offices all day. Like we have other voices. We have other people. We, we have, have coworkers. People. It's, it's co-workers. interesting. Yeah. <laughs> but they're not employees. 
All right. Last question. Predictions from each of you for the next 10 years of ChangeLog. Listen to the episode we did with Quincy. <laughs> I'm just saying. I'm just kidding. Yeah, he's plotting on these. Just go I defer to, to podcasts show, already recorded to some degree. Yeah. Uh, Asked and answered. Well, you should listen to that show anyways. If you're listening to this and you're this far into this show and you're this curious about what Jared and I are doing or either of us in particular, you would do a service to listen to some of our history. You'd probably understand a bit more about our roots and DNA and why we have the opinions we have. And if those opinions resonate with you, then reach out and say hello or whatever. But I would encourage you to listen to that episode. You can find it at changelaw.com slash 10. You can also celebrate with us this decade we've spent podcasting, creating conversations, news and community. And it's been a big deal for us to be a part of that, to, to sort of cultivate this idea of community and this idea of open source software and this importance of what we do, enriching the lives of developers, as we say. That's a big deal for us. You know, we're hackers to the heart. Jared, I'm just seeing all of our taglines, man. When Adam runs out of things to say, he just starts using our taglines. <laughs> okay. I do have more to say, though, on that front. I think that for the next 10 years of ChangeLog, I think you'll probably see us do a lot more. I think what we've done is figured out some of our sweet spots, and you'll just see us chisel those out further, which is to produce shows that are community-focused, produce shows that aren't Jared and I, or simply just Jared and I, that produce also shows that he or I specifically have vested interests in. If we bolted on a show that we had no interest in, it wouldn't do our network or what we do any service because we can't be personally invested in them. I think a personal, we've learned that a personal investment of either he or I is a kind of crucial to its success. If I don't care about it and Jerry doesn't care about it, it falls by the wayside and nobody cares. Mm-hmm. And we're the only ones around here picking up the ball first. We hand it off. So I'd say that's probably how we'll build our business in terms of other things. We'll probably try it, experiment, iterate, and kind of go back to that profit to effort ratio and say, does it have a degree of profit for its effort? And if the answer is no, not right now, then we'll just put it back on the shelf and come back to it later. Jared, any predictions of your own? I've never been much of a planner. Can't see, you know, three months ahead of me, let alone five or 10 years down the road. <laughs> right, agile. So there I am. I'm agile. You know, there's my sacred cow. I honestly don't know what media is going to look like that's, in 10 that's years, a good so point. let alone change yeah, a lot of media. Good point. So it's kind of really hard to predict without looking like a fool with my pants on the ground. I have some hopes. I sure hope that podcasting continues to be a form factor for which people gather knowledge. I hope that it for sure remains a key piece of a software developer's toolkit to reach into and to be entertained, to be educated, to be a part of a community, to have a voice and to listen to other voices they aspire to be like or learn from. So I I hope those two things remain true. If they don't, then our business dramatically changes. (laughs) We join the club. Yeah, we got different problems. Yeah, (laughs) Join the club. All right, guys. Can I ask you a question then, Jeff? Yes. Yes, Closer. Shoot. You've known us for a number of years. You ask us these kinds of questions. And I'm curious as yeah. an outsider, an observer to Jared and I and ChangeLog Media, what do you think we should do in the next 10 years or try? Well, frankly speaking, I think it's the same story for me. It's change or die. I don't think that podcasting is going to be around in 10 years, at least in its current form. So I don't know what that change looks like. I just did a second interview with Tim O'Reilly because I think if Tim O'Reilly is basically the gold standard for what our business is, right? I mean, you know, no, nobody has been more successful in the world of software media than Tim O'Reilly. So, you know, I think the, you know, it's like, 
the positive trends that we have to take advantage of are just that the the market is growing and growing and growing. So, you know, you have an opportunity, you have a really strong brand, right? Like Changelog is a really strong brand. So it's a question of like, what do you want to do with that brand? You know, I don't know exactly what that looks like, but I think you want to position yourself to basically have some competency in these other categories, whether it's YouTube or you know, whatever else you want to get into. You guys certainly do Twitter better than I do. I'm terrible at Twitter. I don't have any Twitter. I don't have any Twitter strategy, basically. My strategy is to, to not be on Twitter, basically. I mean, to, like... Tell me your like, strategy, Jared. This is Jared's strategy, not mine. Memes. One word. <laughs> yeah, that's it. Well, I mean, honestly, I'm not a, I'm not even a huge fan of memes. It's just like what works on Twitter, it's memes. And I can, I can scratch together, you know, a meme. He's very good at that. He can look at a video and derive some way, shape, or form that it relates back to the software developer lifestyle and or processes and or ways. It's really interesting. I'm personally entertained by Jared's memes on our Twitter account. <laughs> well, thank you. Got one fan out there. And they get lots of retweets. Wow. I mean, there's been one that's like 10,000 retweets and a million views or something like that. It's like crazy that these things get that much visibility. It's, it's wild what that network effect does to one single tweet. And it's from a... a a dude on a computer in Omaha, Nebraska. <laughs> Twitter's <laughs> weird. <laughs> yeah, but what I will say is I think it's going to get harder. I mean, maybe it'll get easier. If it gets easier, that's great. Like, life is great. Well, what did Tim O'Reilly say that led you to these? Because you said you talked oh, right. to him, Well, think... So the interesting Tim O'Reilly thing is O'Reilly is a story of, of three business lines, each one subsequently bigger than the next. So the first one being the print media business, second one being the conference business, and the third one being the e-learning business. And the idea of laddering over basically 40 years from a completely bootstrapped company, over 40 years going from a documentation company to a book publishing company to a conference company to an e-learning company, you know, led by this guy who just has tremendous hustle, that to me is something to, I don't know what the lesson is, but there's some lesson there. You know, I just, I see other players it's just it's it's amazing how how differentiated o'reilly is from the other people who are in this space and maybe it's because he started earlier maybe it's because i don't i don't know i don't have the exact understanding of it i wish there was a a book i could read on the history of o'reilly but yeah i don't know only the paranoid survive so i think we should be paranoid that's that's my that's my perspective i don't want to lose my business viability can i share my biggest fear sure spiders yeah, spiders. <laughs> Arachnophobia. Well, as you speak about Tim and the kind of businesses he built, it reminds me of the businesses that I don't think I want to run. Not that I don't want to be a, you know, a large scale software media company. I don't think I want, I don't personally aspire to run a business that has many, many conferences and that kind of. Many but it's better than having parts. no business is what I'm saying. So your biggest fear is that you might be a too successful business. Well, here's, this is my biggest fear then, okay. at least so far. And I guess the easiest way to describe it is just that to be successful, in quote, successful, whatever that means for this business, that it would require us to create a company that I don't want to run. That's my biggest fear. Like you know, either get the, bigger or disappear. Right, exactly. You either, you know, go into obscurity because you're not willing to make the necessary changes. That's my, probably my biggest fear because mm. I like the kind of business we run. I hope we can run it for another decade, if not more. I hope that as I said, that the way that podcasts are received and the way that knowledge is shared, especially with software developers in this ecosystem we're in, I don't care if other ecosystems change, if software developers always care about the, you know, what podcasts bring to their life 
and they always add value, then we'll have a home. But if, if the way things change media wise force us to create a business to be in quote successful is a business I don't want to run, then it would be unfortunate. I'm with you. I hope that doesn't happen. I mean, I'd be in the same boat. Look, trust me. Like, I'm just scared. I don't know. Maybe I'm too scared. I'm just scared. If podcasting fails, I think I'll just do what we were doing before we started podcasting. Like, I'll just keep writing software. You know, there's so many opportunities. Here's the thing is I think after you spit, and this is why I think it's pretty awesome to to do the cross training involved in, in starting a business consulting, like leadership training, software management training. There's something there. There's some kind of business there. There's something to fall back on. There's something to pivot to, especially if you were under the gun. There's something, unless the economy in, like has some macro failing, in which case we're all in trouble. You know, There's no way to prepare for that situation. I feel like there's some fallback, just the breadth of knowledge and the differentiated position that you get to by virtue of, of interviewing people for a weird podcast, a very niche podcast for 10 years. Like you're just, you're differentiated in a way that people are going to pay you money for a very, very long time is my perspective. So, but I'm just paranoid. I'm just, I'm, I, I never want to go back. I don't ever want to work for a big company again. I'm just, that's the thing that scares me. You want to know my biggest fears. I was going to say, you could just go back and get your job back at Amazon, right? You should see his face listening. You should see Jeff's face. It's not Amazon even. It's the interchangeability of the different companies that I work for. Just the servility and the tedium and the... uh, The games, the politics, the insider stuff. The commute. Yeah, the commute. Well, that's if you had to go into the office. What would you listen to on the way? You have to listen to Changelog, I guess. Oh, I listen to plenty of Changelog. (laughs) You guys, I was at inbox zero of Changelog, SE Radio, This Week in Startups. This is why I love podcasts. Is like, I it was like nonstop clockwork orange for my ears level, you know, podcast inputs when I was just figuring out how the hell am I going to escape this this tedium, you know. But anyway, that was me. Now you've escaped and there's no way you're going back. I hope not. Hope not. So then let's let's give a command then or a request or a desire to the listening audience of this. Like, keep listening. If you want to help us or help Jeff, the easiest way you can help is to go and tell two friends, just two friends, literally open their phone, literally show them the podcast app. If they don't already know, show them how to download it because not everybody knows. Right. That's true. Show them your favorites. Share a favorite Here, episode. Here's, here's the other thing. I don't even like... Some listeners asked me to set up a Patreon channel. I set up a Patreon a long time ago, but I don't like I don't want people to promote it. I don't please do not donate to me on Patreon cuz I want to be in a position where I can say if if the bottom drops out of, my, of the podcast market, maybe I could just say, "Hey, look, look, please, 1000 true fans. This is I need you now." That's oh, right. I need that big moment, yeah. <laughs> if the bottom drops out, that's, <laughs> that's what right. you ask for the charity. There's a, your fallback plan right there. Charity. I've entertained you for this many years. Please. <laughs> yes. Please buy me ramen noodles. That's right. For a month. Oh, That's wait, right. a quarter. Well, I'm usually the pessimistic one, but amongst the three of us, I think Jeff's taking the cake here. I mean, yeah, he really is. He's scaring me, honestly. I, I'm never talking to you again, Jeff. This is the last time. <laughs> I probably told you that is this, but like, it's because I, I used to play poker and the bottom dropped out of the poker market. Poker market collapsed completely. And it, it's just not a fun experience. I just, I never want to go through that again. So was there, having said that though, were there any, in retrospect, were there any telltale signs that it was going to that you did not see then 
that you see now that you can sort of identify as potential, you know, failure points for current scenario? Sure, I'll tell you. It was a very relaxing job. I got to make my own hours. Sound familiar? Mm. Sound familiar? It was a booming industry. Then what happened? Felt like it was getting more and more popular. The World Series of Poker. Uh, World Series of Poker. Yeah. You know. It was in the limelight for a while there. Was it regulation though, wasn't it? It was regulation. That was basically what, what killed it. And I mean... Poker provides much less value than software, so I, I, I honestly think I'm part of me knows I'm I'm way too paranoid. So, who's going to regulate the podcast market? Spotify. Spotify. I don't know. <laughs> I would say aggregators and indexes. That's what regulates. Well, right. yeah, I think if we had to have a fear point potentially, it would be if Spotify decided to not acquire but to destroy. So, if their part of their growth strategy is to you know bolster up podcasts. And then chisel into each different genre, which basically gets easy because you just go to the topics, you know, that are within iTunes and how that works, the way that the podcasts are categorized. Categories. Yeah. I mean, it's pretty easy to start to say, okay, once I've conquered one level of the category, go to the next and to the next. If they decide to do something like that and create original content, if we have the same kind of war, I suppose, in the streaming wars in podcasting, which I hope, I guess it's probably some, there's probably some telltale signs there. I would desire to be acquired rather than destroyed. Just saying, Spotify, if you're listening to this, yeah. <laughs> you know, acquire, not destroy. Yes. I want to actually, that's a good shirt, Jerry. We should get acquire, not destroy. As a, and then put a, a little face of Jeff down at the bottom saying, yeah. I'm just paranoid. That'd be there cool. I'd wear that shirt. I'd wear that All shirt. Right. Guys, thanks for coming back on the show. It's always a pleasure. And, you know, we'll do another check-in before too, too long. We need to keep doing this, I don't know, the, the conversational aspect of it. I'm trying to learn from you guys, the conversational rather than the robotic questionnaire that is the format of my podcast for most well, episodes. Hey, man, your show is beloved. Every time I listen to it, I learn something. So what you're doing is working as well. You know, different styles, nothing wrong with that. That's right. But uh, it's always fun chatting with you. We appreciate you having us on. And cool. we'll definitely do it again. All right. It's fun, Jeff. Thanks. Apache Cassandra is an open-source distributed database that was first created to meet the scalability and availability needs of Facebook, Amazon, and Google. In previous episodes of Software Engineering Daily, we have covered Cassandra's architecture and its benefits, and we're happy to have Datastax, the largest contributor to the Cassandra project since day one, as a sponsor of Software Engineering Daily. Datastax provides Datastax Enterprise, a powerful distribution of Cassandra, created by the team that has contributed the most to Cassandra. Datastax Enterprise enables teams to develop faster, scale further, achieve operational simplicity, ensure enterprise security, and run mixed workloads that work with the latest graph, search, and analytics technology, all running across hybrid and multi-cloud infrastructure. More than 400 companies, including Cisco, Capital One, and eBay, run Datastax to modernize their database infrastructure, improve scalability and security, and deliver on projects such as customer analytics, IoT, and e-commerce. To learn more about Apache Cassandra and Datastax Enterprise, go to datastax.com slash sedaily. That's Datastax with an X, D-A-T-A-S-T-A-X, at datastax.com slash sedaily. Thank you to Datastax for being a sponsor of Software Engineering Daily. It's a great honor to have Datastax as a sponsor, 
and you can go to datastacks.com slash se daily to learn more. <laughs>